Hello, hello, and welcome to the YGBM Science News Podcast, where we discuss the most recent science news from across the Yale community. I am Mara, second-year PhD student in microbiology. And I'm Sam, first-year MPH student in the Department of Health Policy. And today we have three articles to share with you. Very, very excited. Yeah. Yeah, let's just go into it. Sam, what do you have for us today? So the first study we're going to talk about is centered around the following question. And so the people were asking, to what degree might police transport account for racial and ethnic disparities in use of physical restraint in emergency departments? And this question matters to everyone because there are, in fact, disparities in the likelihood for a person of color to be restrained in the emergency department versus a white person. So how did they conduct the study? And I mean, what did they find in the end? So the researchers conducted a retrospective cross-sectional study using emergency department visit data for adults who visited 13 different U.S. hospitals between the beginning of 2015 and the end of 2022. What they found was that across ethnic and racial populations, Black patients were most likely to have been brought to the emergency department under police transport and higher likely and had a higher likelihood of experiencing restraint compared to if they had been transported to the hospital in any other manner. What we take from this analysis is that there may in fact be an association between police transport and use of physical restraint for Black people, although mediation analyses with this data cannot prove causality. I see. But like talking about this association, um, how can it be explained potentially? So the paper mentions a few key dimensions of this. So the relatively higher rates of morbidity and mortality among Black people when interacting with the police, which could cause distress and agitation when being transported by law enforcement, it tends to lead to restraint during transport. And when a person arrives to the emergency department already in restraints, uh, there can be a perceived necessity of restraint in the emergency department, you know, by the by the staff at the hospital. And also because patients who are brought to the emergency department by the hospital are actually prohibited from leaving voluntarily. I did not know that. Yeah, no, they, they can't leave voluntarily. And oftentimes there's either police waiting with them to make sure that they don't leave or, you know, they... They don't have their belongings, so it wouldn't be possible for them to leave either way because they don't have what they need. Uh, yeah. Damn. Yeah. So what do they say we can do to maybe prevent this type of behavior? I mean, there are a lot of different solutions being posited, but one of them is to exhaust other ways of calming down agitated patients um, or people who, you know, have been brought in by the police before resorting to restraint. And then also maybe even adding people who have experienced mental illness to the behavioral crisis response team to provide peer support to the person who's undergoing the crisis at the time and who has been restrained or could possibly be restrained. Interesting. Um, I, I have to be completely honest. I don't know anything about what's going on in emergency rooms, um, but this surely sounds like a problem. Yeah, I mean, oftentimes restraints are used either because the person is going to be harmful to other people or harmful to themselves. I know that um, when I was a clinical volunteer in UCLA, um, I had experience just sitting with patients who were restrained for their own safety, just and they had, you know, to wear the mitts um, so that they wouldn't scratch themselves and so that, you know, at the end of the day, they wouldn't hurt someone else while trying to um, just, like, mitigate their their physical response and so 
it's it's really tough because to a certain degree i do see the necessity for certain types of restraints um particularly when protecting a patient from themselves but when it comes to disparate uh occurrence of you know people being restrained ethnically and racially it that does not need to be done i feel like it's just like bias within the people who are determining whether people need to be restrained or not yes yeah, so there needs to be a more like meaningful more thoughtful response in place here yeah i want to see the guidelines what are what are the criteria that lead people to be restrained yeah well hopefully we'll see some changes on that front yeah absolutely but moving on to your study what is this research about yeah, so the research that I was interested in, it comes from Yale School of Public Health uh, from Professor Sarah Lowe, and she researched how can climate change have a negative effect on people's mental health. Cool. Uh, can you give us a little intro to climate change, actually? Yeah, just so that everybody's on the same page here, you know? Um, well, I'm sure a lot of you have heard this, but... The planet is warming up (laughs) and we're talking about human-induced climate change and all that I say is in fact based on scientific observation that's been happening over years and years that there's not a debate going on whether the climate change is real or not. Um, But basically what's important for this particular research is that we can separate it into acute climate change effects and chronic climate change effects. So acute climate change effects is what a lot of people imagine when they imagine climate change, which is like very bad adverse weather events um like the flooding that we had in new england this winter for example or hurricanes droughts so different things brought on by climate change are more visible in everyday life by people affected um however there's also such thing as chronic climate change which is this slow change that occurs over years that we all know about and we reflect upon and it places a different strain on everybody's mental health it is more understudied. Acute climate change effect on mental health is studied more because those are actually events happening in the lives of people, right? So they can often cause PTSD or other different mental health effects. Um, however, for this purpose, research focused on chronic climate change. So the review focused on researching the consequences of chronic climate change on mental health. What did they find? Yeah, so what they did here is it's actually, again, a review, not a like not a study, but what they did is they reviewed 57 different studies that use different methods such as qualitative, quantitative, and mixed different methods. And they found out that actually it looks like there is a correlation between chronic climate change effects and some mental health consequences, such as depression, anxiety, and perhaps suicidal thoughts as well. And they also found that it can have some effect on a different range of negative emotions, so not, which can also be considered mental health state changes, but not as acute or not as um, evident as, you know, depression or anxiety. Um, And those would be like grief or just generalized worry, uh, which can be evident in people who are observing effects from chronic climate change. Okay, so what are the limitations and future directions of this research area? So the main limitation, which I thought was interesting, uh, and they know that in the study, is that some studies that they were looking at, they note mixed findings or like null findings sometimes. Um, for example, there was a study that did not find any increased PTSD risk, um, which, which was surprising, of course. But we need to understand that methodology changes, of course, from study to study. Um, another thing is that a lot of those studies 
um, are done in high-income countries. So something that really, really needs to be done in the future is, of course, like research in different kinds, like low-to-middle-income countries, and because they, we all experience climate change together here. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, just using different strategies of measuring both effects and um, effects of climate change on individuals' life and communities' life, because this is very, very linked. And, of course, more research is needed in not only the effects that we see, but also how to mitigate this distress that chronic climate change causes in communities. Yeah. No, this is so interesting. I feel like, um, if I'm remembering correctly, I was in a class where we were talking about how um, our environmental impact in the U.S., it, it will not necessarily have its negative consequences be concentrated in the U.S., but rather... Um, end up in like the western coast of Africa and how they will feel feel the brunt they will bear the brunt of our you know quote-unquote bad behavior yeah I I never actually thought of that but it is true it's all a connected ecosystem we can't just see it as isolated events that you know something company does in the United States will only have an effect in the United States that's just not true yeah yeah and it's just crazy that our behavior could impact uh, the livelihoods of people in other countries where maybe their survival depends more on agriculture and things directly impacted by climate change versus, you know, someone in the U.S. with a white collar job. See, that sounds like a topic for another research study. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, perhaps sometime in the future you'll hear from us of another research study talking about consequences of how different countries impact each other in climate change. Yeah, absolutely. I can't wait to read that. We can get <laughs> someone on that. <laughs> yeah, we should. All right, Sam. Um, introduce us this last study, please. Well, uh, hypertension or high blood pressure is one of the leading risk factors of cardiovascular disease. And despite around half of U.S. adults suffering from high blood pressure, only about a quarter of those people have it under control. And whether someone has it under control is heavily influenced by racial, ethnic, and socioeconomic factors. And this is unfortunate because, according to the senior author of the paper that I'm referring to, um, traditionally underserved communities are disproportionately affected by hypertension and mortality associated with cardiovascular disease. So, in order to counter this, a Yale team wanted to study the relationship between digital interventions and helping people in underserved communities with their hypertension. I see. So what exactly did the study find? So, I mean, I feel as though the this, this study results were not groundbreaking. But the study essentially was a systematic review and meta-analysis of 28 studies, including randomized clinical trials and cohort studies, and it found that hypertensive patients from underserved communities um, in fact saw a greater reduction in systolic blood pressure at 6 and 12 months post-receipt of a digital health intervention compared to if they received just their regular care. So really, it was just confirming that digital interventions can help um, underserved communities in controlling their blood pressure. No, this is great, though, because... The study can be a reference for perhaps future policies um, in this regard. Um, speaking about that, what do you think it means like for the future of treatment of hypertension in general? I mean, before I get to that, yes, it like is so important for it to be a point of reference for future policies, like as a health policy 
person. Yes, I, you know, sometimes things that are obvious need to be stated in order to have to be a reference point. And that's so important. Yeah, maybe they're obvious to you. Yeah. And obvious to some policymaker. Exactly, exactly. Keep me in check. Keep me in check. Um, but basically what this means for future treatment is that we should lean more on digital interventions when trying to advance equity in hypertension outcomes, as suggested by this paper. Um, but I also think in other outcomes as well. Um, it's an increasingly technological and digital age. And so digital interventions should be relied upon. I mean, not in replacement of human interventions and community support, but, you know, to the extent that they can complement services already provided. Yeah. Digital intervention for things such as hypertension, such as, I don't know, blood sugar, that kind of stuff. Super important. High cholesterol. High cholesterol. As as we were saying, we are both women of slightly elevated cholesterol. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I mean, I'm sorry to mention it, but artificial intelligence has <laughs> not been the Especially in medicine. Um, yes, I think we'll see more use of it, especially for underserved communities, when perhaps not as many resources can be or will be allocated yeah. in that regard. Yeah. Artificial intelligence can help. With more tailored care, like personalized medicine, yeah. Thank you guys for sticking with us to listen about those three wonderful research articles. And of course, we're going to drop links in the caption so you're able to check it out by yourself. And, you know, maybe going down the rabbit hole, learning more about this research. Anyway, I just hope you have a wonderful week. Yeah. Thanks again for listening. Bye. Bye.